This episode is sponsored by Elixir Sips. Elixir Sips is a screencast series that will take you from Elixir newbie to experienced practitioner. If you're interested in learning Elixir but don't know where to start, then Elixir Sips is perfect for you. In two short screencasts each week, between 5 and 15 minutes, Elixir Sips currently consists of over 16 hours of densely packed videos in more than 100 episodes, and there are more every week. Elixir Sips is brought to you by Josh Adams, expert Rubyist and CTO of a software development consultancy, Isotope 11. Elixir Sips. Learn Elixir with a pro. Find out more at elixirsips.com. This episode is sponsored by Less Accounting. Let's face it, there are a lot of things about being an entrepreneur that we all hate. One of the things that I really hate is bookkeeping. Less Accounting has just started a new service where you can get your bookkeeping done for a really low cost each month. If you're interested, go to freelancershow.com slash bookkeeping to go check it out. I signed up and they had me all caught up within a couple of days. It was awesome, and I can't recommend them highly enough. Their people are professional and good at what they do. So go check it out once again at freelancershow.com slash bookkeeping. This episode is sponsored by Dev Mountain. Dev Mountain is a coding school with the best world-class learning experience you can find. Dev Mountain is a 12-week full-time development course. With only 25 spots available, each cohort fills quickly. As a student, you will be assigned an individual mentor to help answer questions when you get stuck and make sure you are getting the most out of the class. Tuition includes 24-hour access to campus and free housing for our out-of-state applicants. In only 12 weeks, you'll have your own app in the App Store. Learn to code. It's time. Go to devmountain.com slash freelancers. Listeners of The Freelancer Show will get a special $250 off when they use the coupon code freelancers at checkout. Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 154 of The Freelancer Show. This week on our panel, we have Jonathan Stark. Hello. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. And this week, we're going to be talking about sales conversations. I'm wondering, when you think about sales conversations, Jonathan, what what, what exactly do you think about? Is it anything in particular? Or? Yeah, definitely. For me, I mean, sales is obviously a huge thing. For me, the process, almost always, it boils down to some kind of initial contact from a prospect. So I'll do like, a speaking gig or a webinar or someone just comes to me through my website or in a Google search and they'll contact me through my site and say, Hey, we've got X, Y, and Z that we think you'd be a good fit for. Can we set up a call? And at that point, um, I'll usually, well, almost always, no matter what they're looking for, whether it's mobile strategy or they're booking me for a, a speaking gig or uh, some Times people hire me to write white papers and that kind of thing. Whatever it is, I'll usually respond to that email and say, yes, let's definitely set up a call. Here's a link to, you know, my scheduling software. You can just pick an hour. And in the meantime, you know, in order for me to do homework for that phone call, could you just answer this like a half a dozen questions? And they'll typically, a good customer, it's usually a good sign when someone responds to that email by a booking a call and doing a huge brain dump in the email because it indicates a lot of things to me. One is that they're very forthcoming Two, that they're probably feeling a lot of pain and three that, you know, it just gives me a lot to work with. So they're, they're already pretty engaged with the relationship. So from there, I'll sort of, I'll take that research and I will also before the phone call, do my homework, literally do my homework. By going and researching the person, I'll go look them up on LinkedIn and I'll check out the site for the company and I'll try and get a, a whole bunch of information like, how, you know, how big do I think the company is? How many employees do I have? How many people on LinkedIn are associated with it? Uh, is there any big news about the company? What products do they, you know, I familiarize myself with the enterprise. 
So that way, when we get to the sales conversation, I'm not going to be asking dumb questions that anyone can find from a Google search. And we can get straight into the conversation about why it is that they're contacting me and what it is that they think I can do for them. So I guess it's a long answer that a long way of saying that a sales conversation for me usually starts out over some kind of digital channel and then culminates in a almost always a single phone call, not in person, you know, not an in-person meeting, but almost always a single phone call after which I'll send a proposal. So for me, that's the entire sales cycle, almost always. Yeah, for me, it's it's very similar. I mean, it's not, I don't know that I would break it up, you know, into discrete parts or anything like that, you know, and it does kind of move through stages, but there are a lot of pieces that go into it as the sales process progresses. So, I mean, there's a lot of getting to know people. There's a lot of getting to know about the company. And you mentioned that you do a lot of that research beforehand. And I, I have some questions about that. But, uh, you know, then once you start to get to know them, get to know about the company, you start to find out what problems they have. Um, and I like getting those core dumps too, but a lot of times they don't really know what to tell you. So there's some discovery process in there. And as you dig into those and you figure out, okay, these are the problems they have. These are, you know, you start to figure out what some of the solutions are you know, then you can start putting together a proposal on how you're going to solve their problem or what problems you think you can solve and and what value it has for them. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we've talked about the value-based pricing and uh, yeah, so you start to dig into, okay, what's this worth to you? What does it cost? And then you start, you know, ironing out the details of how exactly your engagement's going to work. Yeah, absolutely. So once I get on the phone call with them, my primary goal is to find out if there's actually an expensive problem that can be solved. Uh, and let me even qualify that further. I might see an expensive problem that they have, just some gigantic inefficiency or whatever, but they might not care about that for some reason that's not clear to me. So what I'm looking for is an expensive problem that they know they have, that I am qualified to solve. So typically the conversations will start off with, Oh, we need you to come and uh, we're having uh, our annual customer meeting and we want to have, we don't want it to be completely inside baseball. We don't want to, we want someone from the outside to do a, a general presentation that's in our area, but isn't just us pitching products or whatever. So could you come in and do like 90 minutes, 120 minutes with Q and A, uh, maybe a, a round table discussion or something on your stuff, but also as it relates to our industry. The first question I'm going to say to that person is like, well, why? It's sort of on the surface, it sounds obvious why they want to do that. Oh, it's going to make their customers happier. It's going to make them seem more helpful or valuable or honest or whatever. But I don't want to imagine what those things are. On that call, I want to find out how paying me dollars is going to result in more dollars for that company. And you can't just put it out there on the table like that, but that's what I'm trying to find out. That's how a sales call goes for me. So it's all about that kind of subtle back and forth of how do you get at that? Do you have the right people on the call to even discuss that? Oh, that's another thing I'll put in the email too, which is to make sure that there's decision makers on the call and that kind of thing. Yeah, I, I definitely agree. I mean, if you can figure out what the value uh, is to them, and if you make the assumption, you know, I've, I've been in situations where the assumption was, oh, this seems really obviously 
whatever to me. You know, they, they clearly want me for this reason or that reason. And it turns out that when I actually start talking to them, they were just excited to get somebody on who could do podcasts, you know, and I thought that they wanted some big technical expertise that I had, you know, and, and, and it really wasn't that, or, you know, they cared about, you know, some blog post that I wrote, you know, two years ago, and mm-hmm. that's what got them excited. And so by finding out what they care about and finding out what they want, then I can deliver the value that they're really looking for. Yeah, absolutely. And not to turn it into a value-based show, but the word value is, um, I've never really liked that word. It's the right word to use, but I've, the more I talk about it with people, the more I find that that word is a kind of a turnoff. Feels very salesy or very like hand wavy or something. So just so people know, it's like, to me, it's, it's almost synonymous with ROI, which I feel like is much more down to earth or something. That value word really drives me crazy. But yeah, if you, so like when I'm on the phone with, when I get on that call, it's like, let's figure out, you know, like a, a typical question will be like, how did you find me? Because I have, you know, I'm a sort of multifaceted person online. I offer different services. So it's important for me to know where they found me. If they just sent me an email through my site, I don't know what led them to it. Did you see me at a show? If so, what show was it? Like what talk was it that resonated with you so that I'll get clues from that about where I should go with the conversation you know, cause it's, it could, it could be anything. It's like, uh, you're almost like a shrink. It's like being a shrink for the client. Like, tell me about your mother. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know? it's true. And you know, you can even ask more leading questions. Okay. Well, what about that talk, you know, specifically applies here? Or what about that talk particularly, you know, got you excited, you know, so then you yep. can start to really figure out, okay, you know, they really dig this particular aspect of what I do. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, that's totally helpful. So that, I mean, that probably, hopefully that makes sense to people. It's like, you got to figure out, you know what you think your value is to people in general. But when someone calls you, they may have a very different idea of it. And what you think does not matter in the least. You have to find out what they think you're valuable for. So once you start to get a sense of that, then I feel like in the, in the same phone call, which usually are like 60 minutes, maybe 45 45 to 60 minutes. Another thing that I'm going to try and do is qualify them as a customer that I want to work with. And there's at least two benefits of that. One is that I end up working with customers that I actually like. That's nice. The other thing is merely by asking them to qualify themselves as a good customer puts the shoe on the other foot in a sense where, you know, they contacted me and I should be so excited because, you know, here's some company with a bunch of budget that is interested in me and my services and what value I can add for them. But I don't take on that many new clients in a year, maybe like two or three. So I need to be kind of picky about who I work with because for a bunch of reasons, but not the least of which is that just my personal sanity, I want to work with people I like. I want to work with people that I'd go have drinks with because I'll probably end up having drinks with them. You know, at some point we'll probably meet in person at some point we'll, you know, might be staying in the same hotel, you know, there's, it's, you know, and, and, you know, before a conference or before an event and, uh, or, you know, an integration, whatever, we'll probably meet in person eventually. And if I don't want to hang out with you, it's going to be torture. So I will do stuff in the call that is a little pushbacky for lack of a better term and say, you know, I'll say something like, 
I don't take out that many new clients. I get a lot of leads. And, you know, what can you tell me about you guys that w- you think would be a good fit for me? Like, w- like what makes you guys a good client? And that will, the sort of lizard brain effect that has on the, the customer or the prospect is that, oh, we're not like being viewed as a lottery ticket. You don't want to go so far as to like look a gift horse in the mouth, but I mean, it's nice that they contacted you. But if you can position yourself as you've got other suitors, so to speak, and you are picky about who you work with, then it makes them defend themselves to you in a way that uh, I think makes negotiations, once you finally get to a proposal stage, makes negotiations a lot easier and can also help reveal what expensive problem that you'll be solving for them. Yeah, I can totally see that. It seems like a lot of times when I talk to people about sales conversations, it's more about how do I get the the prospect to actually buy in as opposed to the other way around. And I think the situation differs a little bit when you have plenty of leads coming in as opposed to when you have maybe just enough leads coming in to where if you land most of them, then you're, you know, then you can make it. So elaborate that on that a little bit. So if, if you're coming from a place where they're, you know, you're in demand, Mm-hmm. then, you know, your sales conversations are going to be as much about how can I help you as it is about, is this a good fit for me? You know, is this a good fit for you? Is this a good fit for me? When you are in a place of scarcity, you know, things are really slow. You're not getting a lot of leads. You need the work. Then Got your it. conversations go a lot more to how do I get this work so that I can eat? Yeah, that is where it gets really tricky. It's hard because you don't want to come across as, as desperate and you don't want to put yourself in a position where the negotiations are, are very one-sided. And I know people who have done this and wound up taking deals that were less than ideal. Yeah. So there's two visceral reactions to that. And the first is that if you feel like you can close a deal by essentially undercutting yourself or giving a massive discount because you you don't care, you're like, I need a thousand bucks in the next three days or I am in trouble. Like a situation like that is really bad for any kind of negotiation. Because like you said, if you're desperate, you're going to do stupid stuff that ends up essentially prolonging the inevitable. It's basically just putting off, you're delaying the pain or you're spreading the pain out over a a bigger time because you're going to end up with a terrible customer. Because no matter how great the customer is, they're always going to know that they can get you to discount. They're going to push back on every price. They'll never be a good customer. It'd be Mm -hmm. very hard to turn them into a good customer. The other thing is that the last thing that being desperate or needy in any way, any whiff of desperation is going to, you're going to lose the deal unless you drastically offer, even offer, even if you offer a price that's too low, you're going to lose the deal. Yep. You have to do everything possible to remove any shred of desperation from your pitch. I don't care if you're like, you're going to get kicked out of your house. The smartest thing you can do, like if you've got, you've got like one day left to pay your mortgage. The smartest thing you can do in a sales call like this is to be a baller and just be like, you know, just make them prove themselves to you. You don't have to be a jerk, but just like ask the question. Listen, I'm picky about who I work with. What can you tell me about how you guys work with outside consultants or whatever it is you do, whatever freelancing type of thing you do? 
and just put the shoe on the other foot and just make them feel like, oh, wait a second, maybe this person does have other options. And even though in the case that we're describing, even though that's completely made up and every fiber of your being wants you to beg them to send you a thousand dollars and you'll do anything for the next year if they'll do that, that will not result in what you want, which is for them to hire you. There are other ways to do it. So like if you, so you just in that phone call, stick to your guns, recognize that what you offer is valuable to them. Once you determine that that's the case and don't even be too friendly in the proposal, like too many pleases and thank yous and all that stuff. It's like be professional, be specific about your accountabilities and their accountabilities and be like, okay, here's what I'm going to do. Here's what you're going to do. And here's how much you're going to pay me for it. And regardless of whether you're desperate or you're not desperate, that's the way to write a proposal. And then once they accept it, if they do accept it, then you've created a good customer for yourself. In my opinion, you've writing a proposal like that maximizes the chance that they'll buy because you'll position yourself as like the prize. Yeah, definitely. And it's hard to not come across as desperate and some people can really sniff it out well. But yeah, I totally agree. I mean, if you come at them from the place of them basically doing you a favor, then they are going to treat you like you owe them, even Mm -hmm. though you're, you know, you're doing work that is worth it to them. Yep. So yeah, I completely agree. That being said, how do you come across as confident and helpful enough? I mean, for me, for the most part, you know, I just treat all of my clients the same. So they, you know, I have a process, I stick to my process and then it, you know, it doesn't come across if I'm having a slow period that I'm having a slow period. Yeah. I think the way to do it is, well, there's sort of two things going on there. One is like, I agree with you. Like once I have somebody as a customer, they all get treated equally. Um, if I had to think of an exception, it would be like, a particular customer has some huge deadline for a trade show that they really need something. And I'll say to my other customers, you know, I'm going to be really busy this particular week, something like that. But in general, yeah, you treat everybody the same because the goal is the same. You want to have like extremely high hundred percent customer satisfaction from all of your customers because that just leads to more work. But in the phase before that, when you're in the sales call or in the proposal phase, the way to maintain, I think there's only one way to maintain the proper attitude, which is to almost, it sounds like it's like super like 1980s self-help booky, but it's really almost like internal personal affirmations. Like just say to yourself, assuming you had the phone call and assuming you found an expensive problem that you can solve, you confident about that. Like you found that, yes, these people have a problem that is really costing them money and I definitely can solve it. So that's a precondition. Once you're there, you have to say to yourself like over and over, I can do this. You know, it's like Stuart Smalley. I can do this. They need it. It's worth money to them. I'm going to charge them an appropriate amount of money because if I don't charge them an appropriate amount of money, like a low ball, they're probably not going to pick me. If I'm too needy, they're probably not going to pick me. I need them to pick me. I know I can do this. So you just got to come into it like, like your desperation is not going to close the sale. So like if, imagine if you went to them and be like, you know what? I'm having a really bad month. I will give you guys 50, just totally on the table. I'll give you guys 50% off because I'm having a bad month. So you're going to get a great deal. I don't think anybody listening thinks that will help them. No, no, that's going to scare them away. Right. So if you telegraph that reality, 
you're also going to scare them away. So you just have to believe, you just have to create this internal belief that the best thing you can possibly do to get out of your bad cash flow situation, which is what we're talking about, you just have to believe and just be your normal sales self. Be like, I've got, I'm sitting on a million bucks in the bank. Why should I work with you? And you gotta, you gotta write the proposal like that. You gotta have that sales call like that because anything else is not, is going to decrease your chances of landing the deal. Okay. So, you know, we, we come at it from a place of, you know, confidence and, and everything else. So you start, you start talking to them. In fact, let me back up because this is something that I'm not really good at. Um, and that is, you know, when I have a, a client come to me, I'm, I usually don't go look them up on the internet and I really ought to. So how do you get, how do you get good at that? And what kinds of things do you go look for when you're doing that? Oh, that's a good question. I mean, geez, I never really thought about it out, out in the open like that, but I guess what I do is when they email me, you know, they always provide a return email address and I just strip the Joe Blow ad off and I go to that domain. I'm like, okay, does this look like, you know, I'm just trying to get a sense of scale for the business from the site initially uh, because I do practice value billing and I know that if it's a really small, maybe a bootstrap startup that's just getting going or, you know, just something that it's like an idea that's not a business yet or a really small local one, one location restaurant or, you know, who knows what, like if there's something that, that I immediately realize that there's no possible way they could have budget to hire me. Um, then that's going to affect my conversation when I get on the phone with them. Uh, on the other hand, if it's a multi, like a global conglomerate, that is also going to affect my approach uh, because I kind of don't like working with those companies. They have, a, they tend to have like enormous budgets. If you can convince them to work with you or become a preferred vendor, but that can take months. They usually require that you have special insurance. There's a huge procurement process. They have horrible payment terms, and there's all sorts of bad things on the other end of the scale. So for me, it's really about, it's really about just not asking dumb questions on the phone. It's, there's some pre-qualification, like I said, but it's more about getting on a conference call where I don't want like the CEO or the CTO to waste time explaining what their business is in front of like five other people from their organization who are just like tuning out. I want everybody to be tuned in immediately. So I can get on the call and be like, you know, I, I understand that you guys are, you know, of whatever, of $500 million company and that you service this industry and you get these kinds of things. Starting from there, what is it that I can do for you? It's not like a spy game. I'm really just trying to make that 60 minute phone call go quicker and make myself look professional and that sort mm -hmm. of thing. There's, there's definitely no rocket science to it. I'm not like, you know, seeing who's linking to their sites or anything, you know, anything like that. Right. Right. You're just trying to find the places where you think you can add value and find the places where you can have the conversations or where you can make the conversation work. Right. So like, I'll, like I'll, I will look for, maybe I know someone that works there. And if I did, I would talk to them and be like, Hey, what, you know, what do you guys think you do? What kind of stuff do you think you do? So there's that uh, as well like see what kind like what direction into the conversation is there if it's a mobile gig i'll check and see if their mobile site is horrible or great that kind of thing yeah right. it's just simple basic research it's very specific to my industry and to the customer whoever it might be but it's just basic like so you can get into the phone call and immediately start adding value keeping everyone engaged 
And, oh, here's another thing. It also allows you to ask really smart questions, which in my experience are some of the most convincing things you can do in a meeting like this is ask a really smart question. Yeah. Is it worth talking about the kinds of things that each of us are pitching and seeing if there's a difference? Because I know we both do different things. Yeah. Yeah. Let's let's go ahead and talk about that. I, th- I think there is because, uh, you know, I, I think you can talk about this, but I, I think what you bring is you bring an expertise in specific areas. I don't know how much hands-on development you actually do mm-hmm. where, you know, that's mostly what I'm selling is, you know, I'm going to go and I am going to do this work and you, I'm going to deliver. It's not so much a result as it is almost a product. Oh, okay. So uh, when you say product, can you just qualify that a little bit? So so I have a tangible deliverable. I have code that I deliver. Mm-hmm. Right. Okay. I So I would, I think that's the prevailing mindset for people who code for a living. And I've been a web developer for a decade. Mm-hmm. So I, you know, I definitely know where that's at, you know, and there's sort of easy money in being a pair of hands that types rails. Oh yeah. A pair of hands that types PHP. Uh, it's really easy to quantify. You can, you know, if some, somebody knows when they need a Rails developer, that's why they contacted you. But the problem with that is that you immediately get into a bit of a commodity market and it's getting worse. So like, yes, you could be like, Oh, I'm a member of the Rails core team. Or, like you can have some demonstrable expertise. Like maybe you wrote a book about Rails or you wrote a book about working for the vertical, like a restaurant industry doing Rails apps with restaurant industry or something and a restaurant calls you. But all the, all of those things that I just mentioned, the reason why the, they will differentiate you from other developers and raise you above the commodity pricing that you'll end up faced with is that you've got demonstrable expertise. So really what they, they would be paying for, if they pay a premium for you, they are paying it because you're a recognized expert for some reason in their industry. But really, okay, so you've got that expertise, which allows you to charge a premium. Probably you're charging by the hour. Probably the listeners are charging by the hour, but really it's kind of like half commodity, half premium based on expertise. Like you mm-hmm. can, you can trust that I've got all these clients. You can call any of them. They can say how professional I am and how fun I am to work with, how my coat's bulletproof, how I do disaster recovery and everything is like easily maintainable. And you can say all those things, but everybody can say all the, a lot of those things, they can, whether they're true or not. So the third party, the demonstrable expertise, like I do have a book, I am on the Rails core team. Those sorts of things carry a lot more weight. And so what I think over time, uh, I guess this is two, this is two conversations, but over time, what you should do is focus on those differentiators and do more of that. And then you'll end up hiring, you'll end up hiring Rails developers that are just a pair of hands. And you will, as the expert, you will be attracting the clients and you can charge a premium because you've got a reputation that's on the line to deliver this high, high quality end result. You're not, see, before you said your deliverable is code, that's not your deliverable. If you think code is your deliverable, then you haven't had the proper value conversation, in my humble opinion, because people will ask for code, but nobody wants code to just like, oh, thanks for the code. I'm just going to leave this on my laptop sitting here. (laughs) right? They don't want that. It's not like a book. They don't want to just read your code and be like, wow, that was great. Yeah. They, they want it to do something. So in that sales call and in a preliminary email, you will do well. You will be able to raise your fees, whether you charge by the hour or not, if you are asking those questions about like, okay, but why do you want me to 
set up this website? Or why do you want to add this e-commerce thing? Or why do you want me to set up this API? And the more you can do that, the more you can increase your profile, your expertise, your rates, everything. And then you're, you're moving away from being a laborer and you're moving into being an expert. So it's kind of a cop out because the question you asked me was, you know, how do I do that if I'm just delivering code? And I answered that by saying, you can't. <laughs> you have to <laughs> deliver something besides code. You have to realize what you're really delivering. No, it's, it's totally true. I mean, ultimately what I'm delivering. So right now, for example, I'm working on a social network for one of my clients and, you know, it's, it's a custom thing. It's a big project. They've got all kinds of plans for it. And, you know, what I'm delivering isn't a pile of code. You're right. I mean, what I'm delivering is I'm delivering them a new business or a new avenue or a new way of doing things. And that's what they're buying from me. Yep. You know, sure, they're telling me what they want, but ultimately what I'm delivering for them is something that works that does what they want. Mm-hmm. Yes, right. And so the, the trick is, and, and that's, I think that's always the case. When somebody gets yeah. called to code, that's always the case. The trick is to make sure it's in the prospect's mind, like consciously, because if it's, it's subconscious, usually they'll come to you, it's like they'll come to you, know, whatever. I'll speak in terms of me because I know I'm right about those situations. So the situation with me, Somebody will call me up and say, I need you to uh, retrofit this, uh, our desktop site for mobile. Like the first thing I'm going to say is like, I know I can do that. They're probably talking to other people as well, but I'm not going to just get into that like hourly rate conversation. And like, because the thing I want to avoid is I want to avoid a situation where they say, Hey, we need you to retrofit the site. Okay. My rate's $300 an hour. And they look, that's kind of high, but you did write the book on it. So we'll go ahead with it. And then only later find out that it's either a company that's so small, it's not going to benefit them dramatically, or it's just not that it's a goal that was not thought through. So somebody said, we need a mobile site. And so the CEO like drops the hammer and then everybody scurries around and they find someone like, oh, I'll never get in trouble for hiring this guy. He's the expert on this. And then, all right, you know, if I did it by the hour, then I'd just be going in and charging a bunch of money with no one knowing, no one involved in the transaction, knowing if there is an ROI at the end of the tunnel. So that scares me. Like that scares the crap out of me because then you end up with uh, situations where the customer is severely disappointed in you. Maybe it's not your fault, but they're severely disappointed with the, let's say with the outcome because they lost money on it. Frankly, I don't know how that's going to go. Like I don't want to be on the end of a lawsuit. I don't want to have an, an upset customer. My goal is to have happy customers that hire me over and over. So if I'm not 100% sure of what the real goal is before the engagement, it's really scary. And it has a you know, hundred other negative impacts on my business that we've been bringing up, which is that you're a commodity, you're looked at like a pair of hands, and et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, I think, I think when I approach coding projects, I tend to sell the end result that they want. So I'm not selling them a pile of code. I'm selling them a solution to their problem. But when it comes right down to it, yeah, I've always thought of the end product once I start building it, because that's when I get into the thick of it, that's what I'm doing, is this uh, chunk of code that, that does their thing. At what point do you have that conversation, though? Is it before the proposal or is it part of the, okay, you got the gig, you're going to be like whatever, invoicing us weekly in arrears for your hours. Now let's start talking about what you're, we want you to build. I, like I in do, detail. 
I do all of that before. So the deep, dark details, you know, the nitty gritty, okay, it needs to, you know, like the, the little behaviors, the small details, I usually don't go into that, but I do get a pretty comprehensive view of what the project is and what it means during the sales process, because mm, I want to make sure that it's something that I can do. It's, I want to make sure it's something I can do well, it's something that I can deliver on time, and I want to make sure that I understand exactly what their needs are so that if I need to bring somebody else in, I can. I'll even, I'll keep going on that, which is you want to also understand if the technology choice is even a good one in the first yes. place. And you also want to. I have uh, turned work away because it wasn't a good fit for the tool set that they'd picked. And right. because they weren't wet, willing to bend on that particular set of tools. Right. I, that happens to me a lot where people will come in and they already know they want whatever. We want Sentia Touch or we want responsive yeah. web design. And, and it's like, why? And if they're not willing to be flexible on that, and I don't think it's a good fit, then I'm not going to get involved with it. It's like a huge red flag. Yeah. Well, you're just asking for trouble at that point. Right. And to take it back to your earlier conversation, but what if I need the money? And then, okay, like I'll take the gig because I need the money. But it doesn't change the fact that it's a bad gig and it's going to end up horrible. And it probably would have been better for me to continue rolling the dice waiting for a good client. Because <laughs> it's just, you know, yep. it's just accruing future debt by pulling in a bad project that you know is bad. Yeah, I mean, I, hi guys, I, I just was able to, to join now. I've listened to the last few moments. Yeah, I've definitely been there where I've taken projects because the money seemed good and I wanted it. And I said, yeah, I know there are all these problems, but I'm sure we can work it out. And it can't possibly be that they're as crazy as they seem. It can't possibly be that things will be as bad as I think. And of course then, Yes, those things are all possible. And yes, they are really that crazy. And yes, they do really pay, you know, not on time. But the thing is, it takes a while for that to make itself clear, right? So, or maybe not if you have clearer eyes at the beginning or clearer vision at the beginning, but it's only after the first payment is late or I, I know, I know I should be getting payment in advance, which I've started doing. It's like magic. I have to say, Jonathan, like this, I have a new client where I said, them, well, you have to pay me in advance. And they said, yes. I was like, oh my God, I can't believe it. <laughs> um, yeah. Right. That just removes that problem right away. But yeah. if you have crazy clients, then recognize that they, it's just going to cause you pain. And even if it doesn't cause you pain the first month, the breakup will be so painful and so time consuming that it's probably not worth it. It could put you out of business. Mm -hmm. I have I'd a rather, friend. I'd rather be late on my mortgage payment than have a nightmare client for six months that could potentially just sue me at the end and completely obliterate my business. I'd rather borrow the money from my parents or something. It's like I recognize that it's a very painful and embarrassing situation when cash flow gets tight. I've totally been there and I've totally done the wrong thing sometimes and it just burns you every single time. So the moral of the story is keep some freaking money in the bank but so you don't have to put yourself in that position. But if you do end up in that position, find another way to cover the cash flow because taking on bad clients just leads to more bad clients. Yeah, it's, for, it's like for, the mm -hmm, go go on. A friend of mine, he did a fixed bid on a project, and it turned out that he had you know severely underbid it, but he needed the money right away. And yeah, he he was explaining to me how it had completely wiped him out. Mm -hmm. You know, so in order to avoid getting completely wiped out, he took a gig that eventually wiped him completely out. <laughs> And, you know, and it was just because, you know, the client wasn't a great client. The project wasn't a great project. And, uh, you know, he was so desperate for it that he, he underbid it. And, uh, you know, you just, you can't afford to do that. 
Yeah, it's either going to result in a nightmare client or you losing a good client yep. because underbidding it or being needy or desperate is just going to lose you the good clients and it's going to attract the bad clients. The bad clients are the ones that will ignore that, the ones that want to compete on price. They'll be like, ah, this guy's desperate. We can nickel and dime him down to nothing and then fight over every invoice and he'll give it up because he's desperate. It's yeah. just, It's just not, you can't negotiate from that standpoint. You just can't. It's a downward spiral that you're better off solving in a different way. I recognize it's a major problem when you're in that situation, but solve it a different way. Don't solve it through your clients. So one thing that I want to ask then, because we are talking about sales conversations here. So we've kind of put up a bunch of don'ts. Um, we've put up a, a bunch of do's, but what do you really want to communicate to the client? Let's say that you have found out from them that they are a good fit, that it looks like they're going to, you know, they're going to work out splendidly. They're going to pay all their invoices on time. The work is going to be challenging and good in a fun way. And it's the type of work that you've been dreaming of doing. What do you need to communicate to them to make it kind of a no brainer to hire you? So I'll give you a specific example. It's very fresh in my memory. So last week I got a random email through my website from a software company that I've never heard of who wanted me to come in and do a talk, an internal talk at an event they were having. That could be anything. Like I've done these for the Federal Reserve and I've done them for Nuance and just little, some startups, some gigantic government organizations. So you never, you have no idea what their expectation is on what they're getting into. You have no idea how complicated it's going to be, how much red tape, you have no clue. So I, I'm like, okay, so I do what I said before. I'm like, okay, let's see what this company is. Go for it. Oh, okay, that makes sense. This seemed like a, a successful small software business, a small to medium software business, try and get a sense of how many employees, that kind of thing, and try and you know, learn their vertical a little bit just so I can ask smart questions when we get on the phone. So I go, okay, great. Could you just answer this half a dozen questions about your business and the event itself. How many people are going to be there? How long is, or how long would I be expected to be on stage? Is it a more of a workshop or a panel, you know, like details, like I just like paint me a picture of what it's going to be like when I get there that day and, you know, click on this link and pick an hour from my schedule, you know, whenever is convenient. So then we get on the phone call and it's like the president of the company, the uh, lead developer, CIO, like a, the high level smart developer guy. And I think there's also like um, a marketing type person there or possibly the person responsible for organizing the event. Weirdly, we got into a conversation about their product and they were explaining to to me about what their product was like. And it's a software product and it's for mobile and it's banking related and all these things. And I'm kind of like listening and taking notes, but I wasn't sure what it had to do with anything. Like it, it was like, you know, you're not asking me to pitch your product to people, right? I mean, how is this relevant? But eventually it became clear after extensive questioning, like, but what, what, why do you want me to come and talk about that? Or why do you need me to know about that? And eventually it became clear that the product that they have is sort of in my wheelhouse. It's like on a phone gap type of mobile application, native hybrid application mix. Um, Once I understood that, it was like the first 30 minutes of the phone call were kind of a waste. Because it was basically a long lead up to why they found my name, but, but I didn't know that while it was happening. So then, okay, so then it's like, all right, I came right out and said, okay, I understand now why you, you picked me and why you, they had they had noticed a couple of talks on my site and they were like, we're interested in these talks. I'm doing something like that for this event. 
can you tell us about those talks and what the content is like? So I did that real briefly, but I was like, I finally, I came out and I was like, what's the goal of this event? Like if it was like a home run, like if I came in and just knocked it out of the park, what would I have to do to make it like a huge win for you guys? You know, we could have talked all day long about details about where it is and like what time I was going to set up and what was going to be in the talk. And like, do I have a Mac or PC and do they have a projector that, you know, all those little details. But all I really needed to know was why do you want me to do this? Like, why would you spend, and I would, I always say this, why would you spend all the money to have me come up there to do a talk like this? There's got to be some kind of ROI for you. And weirdly, the guy said, no, not really. We just want to make the customers feel like they don't, that we're not just pitching products to them all day long. We want someone from the outside to come in and be like an outside expert that is of a like mind with us. So I was like, okay, so what he's really saying is that it is a sales thing, but they want a sales thing that's not coming from their sales people, right? Mm-hmm. So I'm like, okay. And I, they had already shared with me who their customers were and they're gigantic. So I was like, okay, so basically I'm doing a sales thing for them for huge customers, which presumably are paying a, you know, fees that you are in the six and, you know, five and six figures for sure. So, all right. So then when you like turn around and look at it, it's like, all right, it's tops. It'll take me eight hours. You know, there'll be a couple phone calls leading up to prep and blah, blah, blah. I said, okay, I got all this information. And now the proposal, the proposal is where the, the answer to your question comes from. So in the proposal, the information that I want to convey to them is that I do professional speaking all the time. And I'm not going to say to them, I do professional speaking all the time. What I'm going to do is I'm going to demand of them certain things that a professional speaker would demand. So in the proposal, I sent, I was like, thank you very much for this opportunity. Yeah, I think this is an important event. It'll be a, great to meet you and great to meet your clients. And I look forward to having a very successful relationship. Okay, great. Here's the pitch. Here's what I'm going to do. I am going to come to town the night before because I don't want to risk any possibility of being late for this important event. I want to arrive as much as an hour or more early for the event. If you have someone on site that can let me in, Uh, I want to meet with a dedicated AV person. I want to, you know, all of these things, all these things that they're probably not thinking of because they don't think about doing professional speaking events all the time. They don't normally put on events. So the thing that I want to convey by demanding things of them, what I'm conveying is that I do this professionally. You can trust me. You're not taking a risk with me because I'm telling you how to put on your own event. Here are the things that you need to do to satisfy the speaker requirements. And, you know, so then I'll go through that. And at one point I was like, can you, if I want to stay at the closest four or five star hotel near your location, which conveys to them that it's very important to me to be close to their event. I don't want any weird, unexpected delays. And it also conveys to them that I'm not going to stay in a Motel 6 that I'm accustomed to you know, be a little prima, throw a little prima donna at them and be like, I'm accustomed to staying at a really nice place, just like I'm sure all your customers are going to be staying at. So let me know what that is, et cetera, et cetera. So, so far what I'm conveying is that I'm an expert public speaker. We've already determined on the phone that I'm a domain expert for what they want me to talk about. And now I'm saying, and I expect to be treated like an expert and not like someone who's just going to stay at a motel six. Like I'm not doing that. I'd rather not do the gig. 
and so that was all very clear. And then, you know, by the end, it's a hundred percent clear what's going to happen. It's a hundred percent clear that what they're getting into and what I've done, I think, or hopefully what I've done is I've completely minimized any sense of risk about hiring me by the time they get to the end of the proposal. Right. And at the end of the proposal, it's like, and here's the price. So by that time, what I'm hoping is that they'll look at the price and be like, Oh, I thought it was going to be more. Mm -hmm. But if I just said to them, yeah, I'll show up, you know, I'll, I'll do two hour phone calls before I'll show up for four hours and then I'll leave. They'll be thinking, Oh, okay. Like six, like six hours. Maybe if you charged like 500 bucks an hour, it would be whatever. You know what I mean? Right, so like, you're, you're setting, you're setting expectations, not only as a domain expert, but as someone who deals with large companies and has the expectations that the large companies, most high ranking outside consultants and advisors also expect. And so they're putting you, they are psychologically putting you in the category of their fancy lawyers, fancy accountants, fancy other advisors, rather than, oh yeah, the programmer we hired for a few hours to get some mobile information from. Exactly. Yeah, you nailed it. So I have some uh, proposer's remorse. I don't know what you call that, but... (laughs) (laughs) Seller's remorse? (laughs) Basically, so there's a company that recently reached out to me to do some training on site for their folks. And so I just kind of pulled together and I said, you know what, here's what I'll talk about. Here's what I plan on doing. Here's what I'd like to cover. Here are some of the things that I would like to do in order to make sure that, you know, it's a valuable experience for you. But what I didn't put in there was, you know, I, I have to fly, you know, on, on this specific airline and I'm going to fly, you know, I'm going to stay in the hotel. And, you know, basically what you did, you know, while I'm doing this training and basically put across you know, I'm a professional and you need to treat me like one. And, oh, I do this all the time, even though, you know, this is, you know, I've done it a few times, but not, you know, not on the level that they're talking either. So, but by, by acting that way, you know, I do, I wouldn't have had to necessarily tell them I haven't done this a zillion times, but I could have come across as somebody who was professional and expected to be treated that way. Mm. Yeah, no, I mean, that doesn't sound, I wouldn't call that remorse level. I mean, I suppose it depends on the final price. I know, price. but I wish I had done something different. That's what I'm saying. And I just, you don't want to be a jerk, obviously. Like, right. Like the, you know, you guys all saw Elf, right? The movie Elf, where the, the scene where Miles demands that the, he picked up the airport in a Mercedes that is exactly 72 degrees interior temperature. Right. You know, you don't want to be that guy. No. <laughs> but no, you do. But, but I could have said. Wanna, yeah, you could have. I could have said I want to fly Delta from Salt Lake to Atlanta and I want to be put up in a hotel, like you said, you know, so that it comes across as, you know, this is the way I do it. Mm. Let me add one thing that I didn't explicitly say. So I asked the question about the four or five star hotel, right? But I don't make them pay for it. Like at the end of the quote, I say, here's my fee. This fee is 100% inclusive of all travel, lodging, and uh, administrative costs, and you will not pay a dime over this fee oh. for anything that happens on the way. Yeah, yeah. The four-star hotel thing is so that, well, they're not expecting me to say I'm going to pay for the hotel. So the the point of the four-star hotel thing is to say I am a pro at this. I'm I'm old for God's sake. I'm like almost fifty. I'm not going to like fly around and stay in a crap hotel in my twilight years. So it's, it's about that. It's about setting an expectation. And then you get to the bottom and I let them off the hook for the price. It's rolled into the fee. So they don't have to worry about it. The fees raised commensurate. I mean, they are paying for it, but the point is that it's not going to be, they don't have to worry about that getting the expense report and like, Oh my God, he had three bottles of champagne the night before the show. And (laughs) 
<laughs> all that stuff. I don't want to get into that kind of a conversation with anybody, and I don't want, and I don't want to get paid after the fact for anything. Oh, that makes so sense. I just go here's the, here's the fee it includes everything: travel, hotel, food, entertainment, everything. You don't have to worry about anything with me. You just send me the check, and you can forget about money with me. But the point of the hotel thing is more about making the, is preventing sticker shock later. Yep. Right, and, and and that initial impression you give people can definitely affect things. I, mean, I was just speaking to someone re- recently about doing some training for them, and they asked me how much to charge. And of course, you know, I have the amount that I charge when I'm in Israel, but this was going abroad, and I sort of hedged a little bit. And I realized that if I had been much more confident and stated a a high figure, and I said, "Well, this is what I expect because I'm really good at what I do," it would have come off as much better. Instead of me saying, well, this is what I charge here, but I should probably charge more elsewhere. And better to be confident and high and wrong than, you know, with, demonstrate your lack of confidence, I think. And of course, I realized that after the words left my mouth. But, um, <laughs> how, how did that question, how did that question get raised? That's interesting. Like, can you describe well, I mean, that social situation? Sure. So basically, I mean, I'm talking to, I mean, I'm now doing, as of, as of a month ago, I'm now doing training on my own instead of doing it through a company in Israel. And a company abroad actually contacted me and said, hey, we're interested in having you do training through us. And they're very impressive and I really like them and I think I'm going to end up doing work for them or work through them, however you wish to describe it. Um, I'm continuing to negotiate with them and talk to them about all sorts of things. But they said, you know, one of the questions was, well, what's your training rate? What's your daily rate? And I told them what my daily rate outside of Israel. but And I did say, but you know, if I'm going to go abroad, I'm going to have to be compensated more for that. And then I sent them email afterwards saying, you know, I said my daily rate, you know, I said outside of Israel, well, obviously, like, I don't want to mess up your margins, but at the same time, I think I'm giving you a lot of value. And like, so not only did I say things that I thought were stupid, but then I sent an email, which I think is stupid. Now I'm thinking, okay, I better knock the socks off of them over my next few conversations. <laughs> and, and then we can reach a high rate. But truth be told, I think if all works well, then I'll make lots of money and I'll make them lots of money, which is, of course, my goal. Like, my goal is not to, like, I'm totally okay with them making lots off of me if I'm also doing well. But my goal mm-hmm. is not to sort of stiff myself. Right. And the lack of confidence that I demonstrated, it's funny because like it's been so long since I've needed to think about how much do I charge for outside of Israel because I just haven't done it in, I don't know, years. Mm. Other people have been pricing for me and badly so for, bad. <laughs> so for people that are listening, if it, this is actually, a, I'm glad you brought it up because it's a pretty common situation where someone puts you on the spot. It could be in a product, it could be in that initial sales call where someone's like, can you just give me a ballpark or uh, or something like that. And they'll put you on the spot. And if you don't have an answer ready, do not answer. Just be like, oh, well, we can, we can talk about that. It's different for different well, things. Or if somebody says, what's your, what's your hourly rate or what's your day rate? I say, I don't have one. And just be like, okay, uh, well, how do I know how much you charge? And be like, it depends on what you want me to do. You know, I don't know what you want me to do yet. How, you know, so just avoid, just avoid answering that question in a polite way. So, well, it's the, the funny thing is, like, I was convinced I did have an answer because I, you know, I've now been telling everyone this is my daily rate for courses. And if it's a two day course, it's twice that. Four day course, it's four times that. But I, I was in a situation that I sort of hadn't anticipated. But as, like, as I started thinking through it, I said, huh, actually, like, first of all, Israeli companies are cheapskates and other companies are willing to pay more. <laughs> and second of all, I mean, I guess I'm not as old as you, Jonathan, but um, thankfully, <laughs> thankfully you've joined the show, so like I don't feel like the the, the you know the dinosaur rider out here, um, or the only one. But I also like 
as much as I enjoy the travel, I enjoy being with my family more and I don't want to put undue burdens on my wife and on my children. Mm. And so if they're going to get me to go abroad, it should be really worthwhile for me. So let me, let me put words in your mouth for the next time. Next time you'll mm-hmm. have an answer because you'll have thought about it. But you could have said something to position yourself for a large quote later by saying something like, my domestic rate for in Israel is this, but you know, I never go out of country. I never fly internationally because I've got a family. So it's just not worth it to me. So you'd have to pay some astronomical amount of money to convince me to do that and just leave it at that and just right. leave that idea in their head. It's not manipulative. It's honest. Cause like what you just said, I'm in the same boat. I've got little kids. Like I started late. So for me to leave town overnight, even locally is a major undertaking in terms of like, you know, babysitting coverage. It's like, it's a pain in the butt. Any overnight gig is sort of parabolically more expensive than a one day in town gig. I'll charge you 300 bucks to go to your office if it's, you know, if I can get there and back in 20 minutes. But if I have to go to Montreal or whatever, you know, if I have to pull out my passport, it's kind of like a, I don't have like a a fee schedule for it, but it gets exponentially more expensive the farther and longer away I'm going to be from home because my cost goes up. So I have to charge accordingly. Right. Well, I mean, in this particular case, they knew that I've been doing training abroad and I didn't want to sort of drag up the whole, well, you know, I stopped working with this other company because I felt like I should be making more. I mean, to a certain degree, that's, I guess it's obvious. I mean, I think it'll work out just fine, but right, right, right. And, and look, I'm still in the negotiation phases with them and I think it's going to work out very well for everyone. But right, I fumbling in foolish way, but I planted the seed of saying, listen, if I'm going to leave home, then it should be worth it for all of us, but certainly worth it for me. Because I'm no longer willing to take the same rate flying you know, away from my family, like the day, same daily rate, going to Beijing, much as I love it there for a week, as taking the train to Tel Aviv in the morning and coming back for dinner. Right. Yeah, it's like, a that's huge just difference. no longer acceptable to me. Right. Yeah, so I say to coaching students all the time, it's like, learn your lines. It's a game. It's like all of this stuff, you know what people are going to ask you. And you got caught off guard there because you're in a new situation. But there's no excuse for not learning your lines. Right. Just just to get, get back for a second also to the, the question that somehow earlier you, you had asked Chuck um, about like, you know, how do you sort of demonstrate your value to people? I think part of it is just, I would say almost every initial meeting I've had with a client, especially on development project, but also on just like, I don't know, database optimization projects or even like teaching projects, you know, when I come to give a course, they will ask you a question at some point that for them is like burning and really important. And if you can hit it out of the park on that, then you've sold them. So I, I mean, like literally earlier today, right? <laughs> earlier today I was meeting with a new client and I signed with them. These are the people who are paying in advance and everything. Oh, is this really the right guy to go with? And I just saw something colossally so crazy terrible in their software. Of course, it's wonderful if I can point fingers at the previous guy who'd been working on it from whom I, it was so outrageously, ridiculously bad. And I went through very clearly, these are the reasons why it's bad. And I think that was it. Like, I think in those moments, they realized, okay, this is the guy we want to have. And so it's to some degree a matter of knowing your lines, right? Like Jonathan said, but I think it's also a matter of knowing they're going to ask you a question and being prepared to answer it and not think about, you know, are they paying me for this hour, these two hours? Like rather, can I really demonstrate the value I'm going to give them because it'll pay for itself many, many, many times over. Yeah. Big plus one for me. Like if you can toss off a simple, 
response that's very low um, low cost for you that gives them huge value. I mean, that's why I do podcasts. That's why I blog. I mean, we're giving this away for free, right? But it's it's fun and it's not a massive what? undertaking. <laughs> it's fun for us, Ruben. <laughs> oh, right. right. <laughs> but yeah, you know, right. if you can deliver them value in that sales meeting, whew, forget about it. Yep. I just had a meeting with a, a company, I guess it was like two weeks ago, three weeks ago. And I sat with a guy, he was talking about like database stuff. I sat with a guy and I basically said, you want to do this and that will speed up your queries by like a thousand times. He said, okay, I'll try it. And then like, of course the CTO comes in and he says, so how much do you charge? I told him and he nearly, you know, falls off his chair. And that was the last I heard of them for about two weeks. They said, well, we really don't have the budget for it. Well, what do you know? Yesterday they give me a call and say, First of all, that hint you gave us, wow, that was amazing. Number two, when can you come in next? <laughs> right? And so just by, you, you demonstrate the value and they, they, and they, and they want to work with you. Luckily, they give me a softball to work on. Yeah. So there, there's a lot of ways you can, <laughs> there's a lot of ways you can prove your value. You directly proved it in that case. You literally directly proved that you can make their lives better. Typically, I don't, I'm not in that situation anymore because I'm not doing that much hands on dev. For money, uh, so what I end up doing is I I rely a lot more on social proof, and then when I get in the meeting, uh, I rely a lot more on basically j- being professional and uh, mitigating risk. So the sense is sort of amplified. The social proof, the external uh, validation, is amplified. So it's a, for me, it's a little more squishy, but uh, it's still extremely real. All right, let's go ahead and start with the picks. Uh, Ruben, do you have some picks for us? So I only have one pick this week, uh, which is a new podcast. Um, so it's still, you know, getting, getting, uh, getting off the ground called, uh, Talk Python to Me. And, uh, so I do a lot of Python work, a lot of Python training, and it's very nice to see that finally someone has decided to try again to do a Python podcast. They've tried a few in the past. Um, this one seems to have some legs, but we'll only find out in a few months, I guess. So, uh, you can, uh, it's on Twitter at, uh, Talk Python. I'll put the, uh, I think, I think it's at talkpython2me.com. But I'll uh, I'll put it in the show notes, and um, hopefully they can provide some useful information to Python folks out there. Anyway, that's it for this week. All right, cool. Jonathan, do you have some picks? Yes, uh, I recently it, uh, had two books recommended to me that completely blew my mind. One is a sci-fi book called The Martin, which I don't think I mentioned last week. I hope I'm not repeating myself, but. Um, it is just the most fabulous hard sci-fi book I've read in as long as I can remember. It's super great. If you've had friends refer it to you, I second the motion. It is a fabulous book about a United States astronaut who gets stranded on Mars and how he deals with that situation. It's great. Uh, so that's one thing. Um, more business-oriented uh, another friend, Kai Davis, in fact, recommended a book called Pitch Anything by Oren Claff. And it is, it is a must read business book for anybody who is persuading people in person. So if you are in a pitch meeting or if you are doing sales meetings in person, you know, you're, you're doing like the, like we described earlier, the fo- kind of phone calls that I typically do. It is just the most amazing book. For me, it's because it puts sort of a, a neuroscience behind stuff that I just know to do on gut instinct. 
So he was kind of like, he was kind of like putting words to my feelings. So like, I know in a certain situation, I just have this gut instinct that I should say this thing next. This book absolutely breaks down exactly why I thought that without me ever having understood the underlying premise. And if you're familiar with uh, Seth Godin talking about lizard brain, this guy, Orrin Claff, talks about the crocodile brain. Same thing. He just has a different name for it. I don't know which one is accurate. But for people who are uh, trying to, whatever, like I said, pitch deals, close deals, make sales, sell clients, convert prospects, you got to read this book. It's absolutely amazing. Very cool. I've got a couple of picks that I'm going to throw out there this week. Uh, the first one is a book series. It's called The Reckoners by Brandon Sanderson. And I'm, I'm enjoying that. The first book is Steelheart. The second book is Firefight. And, uh, yeah, I like it. It's kind of a fantasy sci-fi book series. It has superheroes with superpowers. Actually, they're all supervillains. And, uh, you know, and then there's a group of, uh, people called The Reckoners that go and take them down. So I've also been listening to The Magic of Thinking Big by David Schwartz, and I'm really enjoying that as well. It really kind of outlines a lot of things that you need to go after those big audacious things that you want out of life. And there are strategies for overcoming some of the roadblocks to that and some other ways to kind of gain in those areas, and I'm really enjoying it. So, And I'm listening to it on Audible, but I'll put a link to Amazon and stuff if you want to get it that way in the show notes. So, And plus one to the pick for The Martian. It was awesome. So yeah, I listened to it on Audible as well. I recommend Audible for that, especially for that book. It was so great. Yeah, I guess we all pick Audible. Uh, yes, and uh, yeah, that's all I've got. So, anything else that we should mention before we sign off? I know you're working on some stuff, Jonathan. I am. It's just about up. It should be up by the time this podcast goes live. So I'll just risk it and announce now that I've moved. I offer coaching services for dev shops and freelancers to agencies, that kind of thing. You know, talk about the kind of stuff we talk about on the show. And I've actually moved that to a dedicated site now called expensiveproblem.com. And if you went there right this second, it would be a very fledgling pricing page. But uh, by the time you hear this, it should be full bore. And there's a range of options for people. If, if anybody's interested in going more in-depth on some of these things with me in a private setting, I uh, would love to hear from you and do that. All right. Very cool. Well, I don't think we have anything else, so we'll wrap up and we'll catch everyone next week. This episode is sponsored by Mad Glory. You've been building software for a long time, and sometimes it gets a little overwhelming. Work piles up, hiring sucks, and it's hard to get projects out the door. Check out Mad Glory. They're a small shop with experience shipping big products. They're smart, dedicated, will augment your team, and work as hard as you do. Find them online at madglory.com or on Twitter at madglory. Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit cachefly.com to learn more. Would you like to join a conversation with the Freelancer Show panelists and their guests? Want to support the show? We have a forum that allows you to join the conversation and support the show at the same time. Sign up at freelancershow.com/forum.